Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 22, The Satire Play, Just for Laughs? Last time, I completed the review of Greek New Comedy with a short episode on the major fragments of Menander's comedies. Menander effectively marks the end of the Greek period as far as theatrical innovation is concerned, but before we move on and start the journey towards the world theatre that we know today, we need to take a step back and pick up a dropped thread and take a look at the satire play. As you know, the satire play was a companion piece to the tragedies and, in the podcast episodes covering the early development of theatre, Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, I made occasional reference to the satire just to put them into context. Remembering that there was one satire play for each tragic trilogy, it has to be said that despite their prevalence, once again our surviving source material is very poor. We only have one surviving complete example, one significant fragment of about 400 lines and other smaller fragments, and some description and commentary from antiquity. But before we get to the plays themselves, here's what we know about their history. Like the Dithyram and the tragedies themselves, it's thought that the satire play grew out of the village festival as part of the entertainments during the ritual celebrations held to promote Good Harvest and to give thanks for it. They're closely linked with Dionysus, the god of fertility, plenty and of course wine. The satires were his dancing attendants, who were half men and half beast. Our words satire and satirical are derived from the same Greek root as satire, which probably tells us that from the start they were presentations designed to be comic and satiric, as well as part of a religiously themed observance. As the Dithyram became formalised and then developed into plays, it seems that the satire made a similar journey. You may remember that Arian is credited with formalising the Dithyram, which may have included the chorus being dressed as satires, and Pratinus is said to have defined the difference between the tragedy and the satire at about 500 BCE, but it's not clear how they would have been more joined in the past. One theory is that the subject matter of the tragedies moved away from stories involving Dionysus, and either the audience or the organisers of the festivals demanded that some Dionysus-related element was retained, and the poets were forced to oblige. Another possibility is that the tragedies developed comic scenes as a point of contrast or relief for the audience, which in turn, over time, developed into distinct plays. However the satire play came about, by the time of the earliest plays we have by Aeschylus, the presentation style at the now formalised and state-sponsored Dionysia of the three-part tragedy followed by the satire play had already been well established. And what were these plays? Well, the evidence we have from the plays themselves and from paintings on vases and other artworks suggests that they were vulgar parody of the myths that had just been retold in the preceding trilogy of tragedies. The chorus always played the Dionysian attendants, characters who were renowned for their wild drunkenness, excessive emotion and sexual desire, and general bad behaviour. The satire were outside of civilised life in the Athenian mind, and we have to imagine how this was shown on stage. The animal costumes, including horns and tails, were augmented with a large phallus, if the vase paintings are to be believed. The chorus leader played the character Solanus, who was also the leader of the satire band, but an uncouth, cowardly and untrustworthy character. Other characters were dictated by the myth in question, but Solanus and his band of satires were a fixed point. 
The plots of the plays always included large elements of trickery, where one or several characters became fooled by another. There's also the use of the consumption of food and wine in the plot, usually to excess, and the concept of the importance of hospitality. A monster, or monstrous human, was the antagonist, and following a physical fight with the protagonist, they end up maimed rather than killed. We draw these motifs, of course, from a very small base of examples, and other lost plays may not have featured them. But from what we do know, it seems that satire was fundamentally anarchic, but still followed structured rules in the way tragedies and other forms of drama did. In the satire play, the heroes recently seen in the tragedy are caricatured and mocked, but beyond this, little more is known. It seems that they drew on a very small character base, assigning the same characteristics across many plays, so in this way not dissimilar to Menander's use of the stock character. It seems that the plays were short, which is understandable given the marathon of tragedy that will have wearied even the most ardent audience. By the end of the afternoon, a short, sharp bit of silly fun was all that anyone wanted or needed. In later years, the satire was sometimes placed before the tragedy as a sort of aperitif before the heavy formal meal. Aeschylus was said to be a master of the satire, but only sparse fragments of his work survive. We know that the Oresteia was finished off with a satire called The Sphinx, but we have no detail of its content. 400 lines of Trackers by Sophocles has survived. The base it uses is the tale of a man who tricks Apollo and steals his cattle. He cleverly covers his tracks by reversing the cattle's hoof marks and his own footprints. Apollo promises the troop of satires their freedom if they track down the culprit, and they become the trackers of the title. Once apprehended, the thief tries to appease the god by giving him a lyre that he fashioned from tortoiseshell as a child, the first of its kind. The sound of the lyre attracts the mountain goddess Selene, who is the nurse of Hermes. She tells how he grew at incredible speed and at only six days old created the lyre, revealing Hermes as the cattle thief. Here the fragment ends, but we can see that in style it was genial and light-hearted, with the reactions of the chorus being the source of most of the humour. Cyclops by Euripides is the only complete surviving satire play. We don't know the date of the performance of the play and have not been able to pin it to a particular tragic trilogy. It takes the Homeric story of Odysseus and his companions on their return from Troy, being trapped on an island by a race of one-eyed giants who enjoy the taste of human flesh. In the traditional telling, the travellers are held in a sheep pen, being eaten two by two, until Odysseus, calling himself No One, gets the Cyclops drunk on wine, which is something he's never tried before, and while he's sleeping off the inevitable effects, Odysseus puts out his eye. When the other Cyclops ask what is causing their neighbour to cry out, the stricken Cyclops says No One. Fooled, they go away. Blinded but knowing that he has to put out his sheep to graze, the Cyclops feels each one before releasing it, not realising that a man is hanging onto the underside of each animal. Euripides makes changes to this basic story, enabling him to introduce the band of satires and their leader, who have been shipwrecked on the island while searching for Dionysus, who's been kidnapped. The humans and satires feast and get drunk, and then the Cyclops returns, and the satires, displaying their cowardly nature, soon betray the humans to him. Eventually, Odysseus is able to use the wine and no one trick to blind the Cyclops, and all escape as he throws rocks at them.
Perhaps Euripides realised that controlling a herd of sheep on stage was a theatrical step too far to pull off. Presumably, the Cyclops was represented by an actor wearing the high boots and a one-eyed mask. Quite how the fight with Odysseus was staged is not known, and seems at odds with the tradition in tragedy where action like this was described rather than being acted. Both, we think, allowing for the practical reasons of costuming and masking, and allowing for the sensibilities of the audience. The laughter comes from the puns and obscenities that pepper the text, and no doubt the references that are now lost on us were very topical and pertinent at the time. There are passages that parody Aeschylus that the astute listener would have appreciated, and even one where Euripides appears to parody his own renowned debating style. More seriously, he also maintains his invective on the pointlessness of war and his anti-religious stance that we saw in his tragedies. Because it's the only complete work, Cyclops has taken on special meaning, but some commentators see it as little more than a burlesque, where all the characters, the Cyclops, the satires and the leader Silenus, are just the butt of Odysseus's puerile insults and silly jokes. For them, this adds nothing to our understanding of Euripides, other than proving his versatility. Others believe it would have been at least as funny as anything written by Aristophanes, and the various set pieces involving the satires and cyclops are moments of great theatre. The same commentators are impressed by the ability of Euripides to maintain his delivery of message that goes against the accepted norms, as I've just mentioned. Euripides, always one to push the boundaries, experimented with replacing the satire with more serious but not tragic pieces, and it was an experiment that Sophocles copied when he presented Electra. The detail and the exact tone of these plays are not known, but it is speculated that they speak to the poets trying to get away from having to follow their serious works of the highest poetic nature with such bawdy and low comedy. Perhaps the hardest thing for us to understand is that the satire was an integral part of the experience of tragedy. This was no optional extra, and although the poets were tragedians, it was they who wrote the satire. It's a switch of discipline that is rarely seen today, and there is no theatrical situation today where we would expect or want to see such diversity of tone on the same billing. By the 4th century BCE, the use of the satire play had declined, and it's likely that only one per festival was being performed. The fact that all but a tiny fraction of the output had been lost suggests that the significance of the relationship between tragedy and satire was lost very quickly after the Athenian Golden Age, and that they were not regarded as significant works in later years. Descendants of the satire occasionally turn up in the later Hellenistic period, and they have some influence in the Roman period, but once they died out in the Greek setting, they have never been fully revived as a form, barring the odd revival and adaptation of trackers and cyclops as individual pieces. We can't really leave the satire without mention of the Bacchae by Euripides. Although regarded as a tragedy and presented as such, it uses many of the elements of satire and can be regarded as an attempt by Euripides to merge the two forms. As you will remember from the episode on the play, the action directly concerns Dionysus, who is a main character in the play, and it's fantastical in almost every aspect, with the possession of women by the god, the manipulation of Pentheus, and all the other off-stage action involving bending trees and rampaging women. 
the norms of satire I mentioned before can all be seen in the Bacchae, but we don't have a direct understanding of Euripides' intention with the play or how far he thought it was successful. The Bacchae and the satire play remain enigmatic. Next time, I'm going to conclude season one of the podcast with an attempt to sum up ancient Greek drama and with a look at the Greek legacy. Putting together these episodes has certainly been quite an experience for me and I think summing them up is going to be a bit of a challenge. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.